the New Testament in its world, with Mike Bird. It's reading the New Testament with the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's prompting, uh, dare I say the Spirit's illumination, that will help us hopefully ask the right questions and come to the right answers as to how we live out New Testament faith today. Welcome to the New Testament in its World, a super series based on the brilliant book by the same name. And my name's Mark Hadley, and I'll be leading us through the brain of one of the authors, Dr. Michael Bird, who's a lecturer in theology at Australia's Ridley College. Now, along with Tom Wright, Mike has written the New Testament in its world, but he has plenty of credibility in his own right with 30 books in the fields of the Septuagint, Historical Jesus, the Gospels, St. Paul, Biblical Theology, and Systematic Theology. But before we get to any of that, we'd just like to ask a much more important question question. What sort of tea are we drinking this morning, Mike? I've got Russian caravan tea, which is quite good. It's got the smell of mud from Moscow, but it's <laughs> it's not actually a bad taste. It's, it's not, actually. I, I know Russian caravan tea. I always think of the camels walking through that particular mud every time I smell its aroma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a, it's not something you go for the smell. It's not, you've got to kind of get over the smell and think, okay, it's not going to taste like the way it smells. <laughs> Otherwise, it's okay. Okay, well, let's move ourselves into something else ancient and somewhat muddy. We're going to have a look at the New Testament world, and this time we really want to know how we can live out the lessons of the New Testament world uh, in real life. So isn't the New Testament ultimately a revision of the Old Testament? The followers of God used to do things this way, and now they're going to do it that way, or is there something more to it than that? Well, to quote Luke Skywalker, uh, every word you said was just wrong. Uh, (laughs) No, that's... It's not the case of like um, Old Testament bad, New Testament good, or as if, you know, um, the Old Testament was kind of like Windows 95, and now we've got kind of, you know, uh, the latest thing on our our Mac, if you like. Uh, Yeah, probably wouldn't put it quite in that stark. It's more like uh, God's purposes and promises enunciated in the Old Testament uh, have been brought forward and in some sense realized, but are still being carried forward. Uh, by Jesus and the church. I think that's that's probably a better way uh, that I would put it. Well, I hope that's at least useful to um, to your listeners. And is there a significant change in behavior, for example, from the Old Testament to the New Testament? I know our theology changes, or it doesn't so much change or it's fulfilled, but do we see a new sense of living out? Oh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, one thing you've got to remember is that one of the most frequently quoted parts of the Old Testament uh, is actually on the ethical side, which is Leviticus 19.18, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, That's one of the most frequently um, the quotes from the Old Testament, and it's used, obviously, when it comes to Christian ethics. So Christian ethics, you know, the the love command uh, is largely based on Old Testament ethics. So at one level, uh, there's a big, strong similarity there. But there is, you might say, new content. Because God has done a new thing in Christ. You know, Jesus has come. Um, he's, he's lived his life. He's taught. He's, he's begun gathering around him the nucleus of a restored Israel that becomes the network of churches, which, which are, are meant to do what Israel was, was supposed to do, which is to be priests and kings of creation, to project God's saving purposes in the world, to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests, a city on a hill, that type of thing. And uh, they go promoting faith in the God of Israel through his uh, through his Davidic Messiah, Jesus. And uh, a further proof of that and firmer fulfillment 
of what's promised in the Old Testament is the giving on the spirit, uh, but not on the Sadducees, not on the Pharisees, but it's given on all flesh, Jew and Gentile. And this means those promises of, of given to Abraham that you'll be the father of many nations, that sort of, you know, multinational, multi-ethnic family uh, is coming fruition um, in, 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 the, in the followers of Jesus as they are diffused and spread throughout the world. Well, speaking of the world, what does the New Testament do to my worldview? Actually, let, let's go one step back further. Do I even have a worldview? Uh, everyone has a, a worldview. It's it's basically the way you organize things around you. Uh, it's it's the way you understand your own your own identity. It's the way you understand the various stories and sub stories which are around you. So uh, you know. What the New Testament helps us to have, uh, I believe, is, among other things, a Christian worldview. And you could say worldview is really trying to answer several questions like, who are we? Uh, how did we get here? What is the problem? And where are we going? OK, so the New Testament kind of helps us uh, understand those questions. Now, that can be uh, questions posed for a, a church, you know, for, for an individual, uh, if you like. And the other thing I think the New Testament helps us with is, is, and this is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, is our own sense of identity. You know, who, who, who are we? I mean, what does it mean to be a human being? Uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And, and given those two things, how do, I, how, how do I incorporate all the other things I have? Like in my case, you know, being male, uh, being uh, a father. Uh, you know, or whether you work in business or a vocation, if you're a school teacher, doctor, secretary, um, engineer, accountant, um, how do I organize those various sub-identities into one you might call a meta-identity of being a Christian? So much of the New Testament, especially Paul's part, seemed to be a reflection of the mission work that's going on in time in its writing. Um, how does that play into my life now? Well, mi mission is a big part of the New Testament. You could you could actually argue that this is really the proceedings of the various missionary activities that are going on at the time. I mean, uh, the Gospels are largely about the mission of Jesus to Israel. Okay, it's not like Jesus is going to Israel, offering them first bite of the pie, knowing that they'll say no. Then the real mission to the world can go under the way. No, Jesus comes to Israel. Um, because God's purposes are always intended to come to and through Israel and then extend to the world. And then obviously you've got the omission of the Apostle Paul and all the complexities and all the, dare I say, the argy-bargy uh, that took place as he, as he uh, undertook that. But even in, in the uh, other parts of the New Testament, the Catholic letters, you've got the same thing. You've, you've got kind of the, uh, the, the encouragement, the debates, the divisions, that are going on, the challenges that they're facing in Asia Minor, in Greece, in 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 uh, Rome, in Palestine, and all of that. So this is really about. Um, you could only, a good example would be like saying it's kind of like live tweeting the ongoing mission, the ongoing church planning, um, uh, the projects and the problems that they're facing are kind of being like live tweeted, if you like, through these letters as a leader is giving us, well, not tweets, but kind of like uh, letters or sermons or uh, encouragements, rebukes, uh, which are going on at, at, at that time. So at, so looking at that then provides a way, well, what about us? You know, what's our mission in the world today? Are we just content to sit around and um, uh, get on with things waiting for um, 
the Lord Jesus to come back, waiting for Christianity to decline, or, you know, what do we do? But no, we're meant to have our own part in the mission of God. You know, we're meant to be making disciples of all nations. We're meant to be building up people in the most holy faith. Uh, we're meant to be continuing that thing of being salt and light in the world. Now, you raise an interesting point when you bring the worldview associated with Judaism uh, into the picture. What does that do for our worldview of Judaism today? Uh, do we still have a particular relationship with that faith? Or has that faith completely just transmuted into Christianity? How do we even see Judaism as Christians today? Oh, that's a very big topic. How do Christians relate to the Jewish people? Uh, there's a number of things we have to say. First of all, you've got to recognize that Jesus was Jewish, all of the apostles are Jewish, and, and the church is, I think, predominantly Jewish, certainly up until about the 60s, 70s of the of the first century. And certainly it's not till after, I think, uh, 70 AD, where you really get this huge increase in the number of non-Jews, of Gentiles, coming to faith in Christ and joining the church. And eventually, of course, Christianity does become a Gentile movement. Now, along the way, uh, you end up with a lot of um, sectarian division, a lot of, as we'd say in Australia, argy-bargy, a bit of smack talk between uh, Jewish Christ believers and uh and Jews who don't believe in Jesus. Now, you see that in Jesus' own day. I mean, he kind of antagonizes some of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. Paul was a, a Jew who was persecuting fellow Jewish Christians, and then he goes on the attack and kind of reverses it. I mean, he's got some real uh, choice words to say about um, the Jews who persecute, persecute uh, Christians and even about other fellow Jewish Christians. And then out of that, sadly, there does develop uh, quite a lot of antagonism between uh, Christians and Jews, certainly in the second century and then into the fourth, fifth, all the way through to some of the various medieval persecutions of Jews and then climaxing tragically, horribly, uh, horrifyingly uh, in the Holocaust that we had in the 20th century. So there's quite a lot of, um, uh, shall we say, murky and dark water that's gone under the bridge that has really tarred Jewish-Christian relations. So how, how do then we relate to the Jewish people? Uh, and I'd say there's, a, there's a certain things that we don't do. There's a certain things we don't do. We, we don't say, well, the, the Jews had their bite of the pie and now they've been, uh, they've been voted off the island. I mean, they had their chance. They saw the Messiah in the flesh. He walked around with them. He preached and his taught. And they said, no, thank you. We're not interested. Okay, I, I don't think that's what we should think as if God has kind of washed his hands with them and say they're done. Uh, on the opposite side, um, the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church's position is that you no longer share the gospel with Jews. You don't evangelize with them. You pray with them. You don't pray for them. Okay, not in the sense of their salvation. And that is to say the Roman Catholic Church's position is that Jews are fully saved under the terms of the old covenant. And Jesus is really just for Gentiles, for non-Jews. Uh, that's a kind of the opposite uh, extreme, which I, I think you get. And it's probably got a lot more owing to a certain proclivity towards religious pluralism. So the, the Jews are fine with Moses. They don't, they don't need Jesus. I would adopt more of a, a middling position, one that I think that is uh, championed by Paul and, and some of the other apostles and 
and the wider trend of the Christian tradition is to say that all salvation is of Christ, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. I mean, that's what Paul says. The gospel is for, 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 the, for the Jew first and for the, for, the, for the Gentile or the Greek also. And there is obviously a place for Jews and the family of the Messiah. In fact, I would say to claim that there's no place for Jews and the family of the Messiah is probably the most anti-Jewish thing you could possibly say. Okay, so I definitely believe there is a place for them. But the fact is, we do have to we do have to acknowledge that the vast majority of the Jewish people have not believed in what I would regard as their own Messiah. But we hope, pray and dare I say, even work for the day where they will embrace their own Messiah. That's something I think Paul uh, Paul believes in Romans 11 is going to happen in the future. So that, that's something I do look forward to, the day that the, the, the Jews embrace what I believe is their own Messiah, uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus the Christ. And uh, we, we just pray and work and hope and to hasten that day. Okay, well, let's take ourselves back to the Christian church as we know it. Uh, in reading the New Testament, we're kind of reading the start of the Christian story, which is, in fact, our story. So how does our understanding of the New Testament affect our personal pilgrimage to heaven? Yeah, well, there's a number of things to say there. Um, I, I like the language of pilgrimage. Um, I, like, I like the idea of us all being on a pilgrimage. Um, the, the, the writers of the Hebrews kind of uses that language on a, on a pilgrimage to the, to, to the New Jerusalem. But I, I would probably change it and say, don't think of it just as going to heaven. Think of it on the way to the new creation. Because as, as my um, co-author Tom Wright says, heaven is a great place, but it's not the end of the world. Okay, <laughs> So heaven is not our final destination. Our final destination really is going to be uh, living, rejoicing, and reigning with Christ over the new creation. And our Christian life is a, a, a pilgrimage uh, towards that. I mean, and there's some great language uh, in in the book of Hebrews on that on that very topic. You know, we're we're, we're going to the Mount of the Lord. You know, uh, the place of our salvation. And I think what the New Testament does is it, it equips us with some of the the tools we need, some of the exhortations we need to hear. It also gives us some of the questions that we need to keep wrestling with. You know, what does it mean to be faithful in this context? How do I discern between what is cultural and what is Christian? Okay, which is, you know, the question we have in every age, you know, am, am I doing, do I believe this because I'm Australian or because I'm a Christian? You know, uh, that type of a thing. Uh, the New Testament also helps us to understand our own place in God's story. Okay, what 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 does it mean for me to live out my faith with my family in my work environment at my stage of life? Okay, and there's lots of good stuff in the New Testament that can help us in that. You know, whether you're you know beginning high school or you're a retiree, that type of thing. So that that that's where I think the New Testament helps us live out our faith and adopt this kind of pilgrimage as we are at different stages of of the journey ourselves. From ancient Israel to Second Temple Jews and on into early Christianity, there was always a sense of where are we in the story? From the Christian point of view, we are living in the time of fulfilment, the time when God's kingdom has already been decisively launched on earth as it is in heaven, through the work of Jesus himself, and yet before all things, including death itself, are subjected to his reign. This is the fifth act of the cosmic five-act play that began with creation, continued with human rebellion, saw the call of Abraham and his family, 
and then saw this bear ultimate fruit in Jesus. The Spirit-led Church is called to live the genuinely human life, anticipating in the present the life of the age to come, freed from the power of evil, which has been launched through Jesus' death and resurrection. So we know that we should be doing, you know, what you're describing because we're the torchbearers of the New Testament faith, if you like. We're picking that up and carrying it on, which is a significant burden, though, isn't it? So what powers our ability to actually do that? How does the New Testament inform us on our ability to actually carry that torch? Well, I would say the New Testament doesn't give us the ability per se. It gives us kind of like... Uh, some map or some guidelines, I think what really empowers us in that task is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given there to keep us in the truth, to guide us in the truth, um, to remind us that we are united with Christ, to help us in our prayers when we don't know what to pray for. Uh, and it's reading uh, the New Testament, I think, you know, in light with the light of the Spirit, you know, with the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's prompting, uh, dare I say, the Spirit's illumination that will help us hopefully ask the right questions and come to the right answers as to how we live out New Testament faith today. And of course, the basis of our understanding of the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the New Testament. Yeah, I think that the New Testament teaches a lot about the Spirit. I mean, there's, there's some very you know important passages. You've got the farewell discourse in John's Gospel. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the book of Acts. You've got some great things in, in places like Romans 8 as well. So that, that there's a lot of really good concrete teaching, not just about what the Holy Spirit is and who the Holy Spirit is, but the, but the type of ways that the Holy Spirit, you know, um, uh, leads us and nourishes us, us um, in the faith. Is the Holy Spirit a New Testament phenomenon? Uh, no, there, there is definitely the Spirit in the Old Testament. You know, you've got in the in the book of Genesis, you know, the Spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, you've got a lot of references to the Spirit giving life uh, in the Old Testament, or the Spirit can often, uh, the Spirit of the Lord can come and empower people for a certain thing. What is new in the New Testament or in the New Covenant is not the fact of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can become a permanent and personal indwelling. Uh, that is what is new in the New Covenant. That's the kind of uh, the more radical thing that takes place in Pentecost. And indeed, whenever and wherever anyone comes to faith, they experience their own kind of miniature Pentecost where they receive that same permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the bit that's new in the New Covenant. So in the New Testament, what is it that you want us to hang on to for living it out? You know, if you have one thing to leave us with, what would that be, that key factor? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, if you take all of the New Testament writings, if you take the Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, the Catholic epistles, uh, the Revelation of John, uh, what what would be one way to sum up the exhortations for us today? Uh, I would have to say is keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I mean, that's to use the language of Hebrews, but that's something I think all of the evangelists, Paul and all the Catholic writers would wholeheartedly agree on. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and keep on following him in the race. 
Michael, we'd like to thank you just straight off for your entire uh, contribution over the last six episodes on explaining the New Testament in its world to us. Not that it actually needs a huge amount of explanation. As a book, it's very accessible and one which would actually give us a lot of information about how we're going to not only understand it as a text, but also apply it to ourselves. If you would like more information about the New Testament in its world, we're going to provide in the show notes additional information about how to actually live it out in this world and also how to access that book for yourself. Michael, once again, thanks very much for all of your contributions. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me. And thank you to all the listeners for listening. And if you haven't had a chance to dig back into this series yet, if this is the first time you've been encountering this podcast, there are five more fantastic episodes that delve into the nature of the New Testament, and we'd encourage you to dig back into those and also enjoy the elements of the show notes that will also be there for your advantage. Mike, once again, we'll see you, I guess, on the next podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network eternitypodcasts.com.au